All right. Well, Elijah was facing off with the prophets of Baal. To give you some background, Baal was a god that the Israelites had begun to worship instead of worshiping the one true god, Yahweh. Baal worship involved a lot of things that we might expect, like asking him to bless the harvest, uh, asking him to give fertility, um, but it also included things like uh, so sexual promiscuity and, um, and child sacrifice and uh, self-mutilation as part of the worship services. And they would do these things in order to try to obtain favor with Baal. It's no surprise that God had told Elijah to preach against Baal worship. So Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel. They would both set up an altar, each with a bull on it. And they wouldn't light the altar with fire, but instead they would pray to their gods, and the God who answered with fire would be the one true God. They would recognize him as the one true God. Well, the prophets of Baal, of Baal agreed to this, and the two altars were all set up, one for the prophets of Baal, one for Elijah. And the prophets of Baal danced, and they prayed, and they mutilated themselves, and they did this over and over again, and nothing happened. Now it was Elijah's turn. He did something very, uh, very interesting, something very peculiar. He, he dug a trench around his altar. And then he instructed them to begin pouring water on the altar. And he told them to keep pouring water until the, the trench was, was totally filled with water. That it was just the altar was drenched and the trench was overflowing with water. And then he prayed a very simple prayer. And immediately fire flashed from heaven and it consumed not just the bull, but the entire altar was consumed in flames. And then he told the people of Israel, because the people of Israel had come out to watch this, and he told them, grab the prophets of Baal, and then he had them executed. Elijah had just experienced an incredible display of God's power. He had obeyed God's instructions to confront the evil Baal worship, and he just had this, this, this euphoric, almost, experience. But it didn't take long for this news to reach the leaders of Israel. And they themselves were Baal worshipers. And they vowed to hunt down Elijah until he was dead. This turn of events sent Elijah into a depression. And he ran away to the countryside. He walked um, as far as he could out into the desert. He, found, he sat down under a tree and he said, Kill me, God. My life has been worthless. Elijah thought he had been doing the right thing. He thought he had been following God, but now he wasn't so sure. And he says, he prays to God, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. His goal was to turn the people back to worshiping the true God. But what hope was there now? He was the only prophet of God left. And now he was being hunted for his life. I'm sure Elijah wondered at this time what he had done to fail so miserably. 
Had he, he, had, he had orchestrated this flashy contest. He thought it was the right thing to do, but, but should he have taken a more quiet, more subtle approach? Maybe executing the prophets of Baal was a mistake. Maybe he should have let them go. But they, were, they were sacrificing children, burning them alive. He had been traveling all around the countryside talking about God. You know, should, should, he have been, should he have been staying in one spot and maybe just reaching a smaller group of people? What had he done wrong? He thought he was doing the right thing, but now it didn't seem that way. He was trapped in a depressed state, and he had no hope. When you're in a valley, you struggle with a lot of uncertainty. You, you, you wonder, what did I do wrong? At what point did I stray from, from what's, what's right? Maybe you made a clear choice. You, maybe you had, felt like you had a clear choice had clear direction, felt like you you were making a decision based on good guidance, maybe even clear direction from God. But now you're wondering if you made the wrong choice. You begin to second-guess yourself. You begin to second-guess your obedience to God. When you are in a valley, you are not just struggling with one challenge. You are struggling with multiple challenges. It feels like everything that can go wrong is going wrong. It's not just your finances. It's your finances and your marriage and your kids and your health and your job. Multiple challenges converge all at the same time, and it can be overwhelming. And we wonder, how can I possibly manage all this? We wonder if there's any hope for overcoming, for thriving, if there's any hope that the burden that you feel will be lifted. You feel isolated, even though it's not true. Sometimes it can feel like you are the only person who is going through this difficulty. Valleys make us feel lost and confused. And in the midst of that confusion, we make uh, what seems to be a sensible conclusion. And we say to ourselves, somewhere I must have strayed from the right path. I must have done something wrong. Well, this conclusion, which seems sensible, is an area where we need to break free. A valley does not necessarily mean that you've made a wrong turn. If you are convinced that every valley you encounter is the the result of some mistake that you've made, you will never be able to take advantage of the opportunities to grow that come with the valley. You'll be quick to flee difficult scenarios, believing that they can't possibly be what God wants for your life. I think that every person who is in a valley wishes that they could make some sense out of the valley that they are experiencing. And that is what we're going to try to do today. Why do we experience valleys? Today we're going to look at different reasons why, at a given point in time, you might be experiencing a valley. And hopefully as we talk about these things, we'll make some sense out of the confusion. And we'll, able, we'll be able to break free from some of those things like self-doubt and guilt and uh, some of the other ideas that keep us stuck where we're at. The first reason we experience valleys in life is because we live in a broken world. Now every once in a while you run into somebody who thinks that uh, everything in the world is A-OK. They cite the improvements in medicine and technology, some of these, these wonderful improvements that we've made over the past century, and they argue that the world is not really the bad place that we make it out to be. 
Don't get me wrong. I'm all, all for being optimistic, for being grateful. I think those are good things. But the idea that this world is not really messed up, does, is, it's a great idea for armchair philosophers, but it does not jive with real life. A recent uh, report from the World Health Organization detailed the fact that each year over 3 million children die from undernutrition. That, so to give you some frame of reference, that's like if everyone who lived in the city limits of Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Toledo, Akron, and Dayton um, all died this year. If our world is A-OK, why do 3 million children die each year from something so simple as not having enough food? The World Health Organization tells us that we make enough food to feed everybody. We live in a broken world. When we look at the Holocaust and the Nazi regime, we are forced to say there is something wrong with this world. How many of you guys saw the movie uh, Hotel Rwanda? Anybody see that? Yes, a bunch of you guys here. I will never forget that movie. It's burned in my mind because it was just so disturbing. Uh, the worst part of this movie was the fact that it's a true story. For those of you who didn't see it, Hotel Rwanda recounts the story of where um, somewhere between half a million to a million um, people were killed in, the ma in a matter of um, about three months. Two ethnic groups in Rwanda had been at odds for decades, and uh, one of the groups essentially conspired um, somewhat in secret to eliminate the other ethnic group from the face of the earth. And they almost succeeded. After about three months, at least half a million people were dead. And to give you a frame of reference, that's about 5,000 people a day murdered. Sometimes we hear stories like this and we think, you know, those days are behind us. We're, we're more diplomatic. We're more uh, um, peaceful nowadays. We're more sophisticated. Um, but but the, the, the Rwandan genocide happened in 1994. It's not even 20 years ago. There is something wrong with this world. We can't relegate it to the past. We can't say, oh, it's behind us. There is something wrong with the world right now. The message from God is this. The violence and the conflict and the, the oppression that we experience in life is because we live in a broken world. And the reason we live in a broken world is because we have been separated from God. The world was never, this world was never meant to operate separately from God. He designed it so that he would be here among us. This, this world was, didn't, wasn't originally this way, of course. Originally, it was a good world, and, uh, and God lived fully present among us. But because of sin, the sins of Adam and Eve, this world, we have been separated from God We've been left to live on our own in a, in a very broken world. This world was originally a perfect place, and really, we can see remnants of that still, can't we? When we see a sunset, we say, wow, that is beautiful. We can see remnants of a perfect world. When we enjoy good food with the people we love, we say, wow, there's something beautiful there. This is something wonderful. And we can see remnants of the perfect world God created. But we also know inwardly that something is deeply wrong here as well. And what we find is that our separation from God means the crea creation itself is corrupted. Diseases like cancer and AIDS, they run rampant through our world. We experience famines and food shortages. 
that are a result of bad weather. Our, our world itself is corrupted. The Bible validates this. In Romans 8, it tells us against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. And then the, the passage goes on to explain how the creation is in bondage. The earth itself is corrupt. It's been corrupted. But most of all, it is the corruption of the human heart that makes this world so broken. When Lance Armstrong finally confessed to using performance-enhancing drugs, were we really all that surprised? No. I wasn't surprised at all. We expect corruption. Every month, it seems like there's a new story on, on some politician or some, 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 some uh, major figure who's misused funds or started bribing people. In my mind, it's just old news. The human heart is corrupt. It's not really all that surprising. But, of course, it's not just others, is it? We all sense this, 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 uh, this tendency in ourselves to go astray, to wander. We all have a tendency to selfishness, to self-obsession. It's not just others. Jeremiah 17 says it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Because the human heart is corrupted, because we have this tendency to go astray, things go wrong in our homes. They go wrong in our governments. Things go wrong in our communities, in our churches. This broken world affects all of us. And it can be oppressive. It can make us feel like we're stuck. Like we're in a valley that we can't climb out of. Pain, difficulty, they are a part of this world because we live in a broken world. You see, valleys are bound to happen in a situation like the one we're in. It's the natural result of living in a broken world. Just because we choose to follow Jesus doesn't, doesn't exempt us from the effects of a broken world. So one reason we might experience a valley is because we live in a broken world. Another reason we might experience a valley is because God is using suffering to form our character. God is using suffering to form our character. It turns out that character formation happens best in difficulty. This is the, this is the idea behind uh, boot camps, military boot camps. They're, they're designed to put people through um, an intensely difficult, even painful uh, routine so that by the time they come out, they are not just uh, skilled with, uh, with these skills for battle. They don't just know how to use the weapons, but they are prepared mentally for battle. One soldier describes it like this. Boot camp is made to psychologically change a child into someone capable of performing under combat situations. The yelling, the sleep deprivation, and being cut off from friends and family are part of the process of becoming a warrior. Suffering and difficulty are an ideal context for shaping character. Difficulty is one of the primary tools that God uses to shape people's character. Uh, most of the biblical characters that you can think of um, all experienced, or most of them experienced, some prolonged period of difficulty or valley. Moses, he wandered through the wilderness for like 40 years with the Israelites. King David, King David was exiled from his own kingdom by his son. Joseph, he was locked in prison. Jesus even spent 40 days out in the wilderness, and he went through periods where... Uh, he, he experienced, like, intense rejection of his teaching. People stopped following him. 
Truth be told, if you would like to grow as a Christian, you should ask God for some suffering. And if you don't want to grow, you should run from any situations in which you are experiencing any difficulty. Suffering is an opportunity to grow. James uh, writes this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Suffering is an opportunity for joy. You probably haven't thought about it that way before. It's an, it's an opportunity for joy because it's an opportunity to grow like you've never grown before. Character formation happens best in difficulty. Another reason God uses suffering to form our character is because God needs to get our attention somehow. And suffering is just one of the best ways to do that. Our son Micah, he is just a, a wonderful little boy. And, uh, you know, he is, he's really, I feel like, pretty well behaved. Um, but sometimes he just needs a little discipline um, in, in life. And so uh, when it's come time to talk to him about something that he's done wrong, he has a little bit of trouble concentrating. And so uh, if he wants, um, so if I, if I want to talk to him about something he's done wrong, I have to get down on his level and I grab his little chin and I turn it to me and I say, Micah, you got to pay attention when I'm disciplining you. And if I don't do that... <laughs> There is no communication. There is no character formation. There is no, there is no discipline. There is no change in behavior. I have to get his attention. Well, God has to get our attention too. And one of the ways he does that is through suffering. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses suffering to get our attention. Many of you can identify with this. You know, it was a period of intense difficulty and suffering where you really realized that you had a need for God in your life. God used that to get, a, get your attention. The truth is that character formation really in itself is a painful process. When, we, when God is, is working on us, he, he requires that we let go of habits. We let go of uh, comfort measures, things we love. It is painful to part with those things. One of the things that God wants to pry us from is anesthetizing behaviors. Now, you may go to the dentist and, uh, and have some procedure done, and you, you ask for some sort of anesthetic. And let's be honest, those anesthetics are a very wonderful thing. <laughs> But sometimes life is so painful that we go searching for our own anesthetic. Something that will ease the pain that we experience in life. Something to take our mind off the pain. And we usually find something that fits the bill real well. When God allows you to go into the valley, the habit of turning to a sinful behavior every time you experience difficulty isn't going to work anymore. When your entire life is a struggle and month after month... You are struggling, and it's, and it's difficult. That small, sinful behavior, that thing that was just not a big deal to you, you just use it to take your mind off the pain, will start to become an addiction. And will start to be more prevalent in your life. And you'll see it. You'll notice it more and more. 
And God will point it out to you, and he'll say, you see that? It has to go. There are all sorts of anesthetizing behaviors we have. Pornography, I think, can be one of those anesthetizing behaviors. We think just a little bit of it here and there is okay. But in a time of difficulty, God's going to shine a spotlight on it and saying, man, you've been doing this a lot more lately. It's not pleasing to me. I think pride and self-love, even things like that, can be an anesthetizing behavior. So many people, I just I feel this way, so many people in life lack love. And so, you know, you may, you may feel like no one cares about you and no one appreciates you. And so you start appreciating yourself. You can get caught up daydreaming about how wonderful you are, telling yourself, it's kind of funny, but, but I think there's some truth here. You can tell yourself how wonderful you are, have an inflated self-understanding. I think it's rarely a conscious choice. But I think that pride and self-love issue, I think it's an epidemic in our world. It's a cheap replacement for what we um, really need, which is God's love. That shopping spree that you can't afford. I'll never forget the time um, when, I, when I went over to a friend's house and he had just bought this brand new speaker system, really awesome speaker system, and he turns it up. He's got the music blaring in his room. He's showing us how loud it is, how cool it is. And then he said something that I will never forget. It really makes you feel better to get something like this. It really makes you feel better. He was absolutely right. It's an effective anesthetic, but it is a temporary anesthetic. Drugs, alcohol, misuse of prescription medication, the list can go on and on. Even healthy things like eating and video games and TV, they can serve this crippled purpose in our lives. God says, come to me for your comfort. Psalm 55 says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Our God is a very compassionate God, but he is also very persistent. He can let people suffer for a long time until they have learned to let go of things they are clinging to. He let Israel wander in the desert for 40 years so they could learn to trust his leadership in their lives. Character formation is difficult because we have to let go of things that are dear to us. If you are in a valley right now, if you feel that God has miscalculated, if you feel like he's given you more than you can bear, I want to encourage you with the words of Paul. No trial has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Usually the valleys we experience in life can be so painful and difficult that we lose sight of the uh, opportunities that are there for growth. We forget that suffering is an inherent part of character formation. So character formation is one reason why you may be experiencing a valley right now. This, this is by no means always the case, but it is true that our actions and, and have consequences. And sometimes God lets us feel those consequences. This is the third reason we might experience a valley in life. God often lets us feel the, experience, the consequences for our mistakes so that we can learn from them. 
God often lets us feel the consequences for our mistakes so that we can learn from them. When it's time to clean up at the Yi household, all the uh, energy and excitement of my kids vanishes. <laughs> One moment they are jumping off the couches, the next moment they are lying on the floor saying that their legs ache, their legs ache, oh. And, and so <laughs> behavioral psychology tells, tells me that uh, uh, incentives are an effective way to motivate people. And so for many months now, I have been uh, using rewards to motivate my kids to clean up their toys. And so uh, sometimes it's a cookie, sometimes it's a toy. Um, and I can still remember the first time we did this. I told them to clean up their toys. I told them there would be a reward, and I showed them what the reward was. I, th I think it was a cookie or something, a uh, cookie for each boy, and off they went. Well, Abram worked hard at cleaning toys, um, did a great job, working hard, and Micah did almost nothing, <laughs> almost nothing. And so it was, it was, I gathered them together, said, all right, once the toys are cleaned up, I said, all right, guys, come here, come here, and I held out my hands. This is Abram's reward, this is Micro, Micah's reward. I didn't give them to you yet. I was like, Abram, I was watching you very carefully. I saw that you were working hard. Here's your reward. And I gave him his reward. And I said, Micah, and Micah's eyes, are, his, they're lighting up. And I said, Micah, Micah, I was watching you too. And you were playing a lot. You were not working hard. So you do not get reward. Oh, the crying. Oh, oh my gosh. The crying and the crying. And then the hitting. Oh, and then a punishment for hitting. Oh, oh it was, it was, uh, things just, things, things were going downhill. <laughs> oh. But the very next day, it's time to clean up toys again. Told them there'd be a reward. Guess what I saw from Micah? A hard worker, and he got his reward. What would have happened if I hadn't let Micah feel the consequences of his, uh, his actions? He would never have learned his lesson. It's a similar relationship between us and God. Hebrews 12 says this, Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, Shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. And man, we're just really doing the best we know how, don't we? <laughs> but, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Bark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. 
The truth is that God has given us the freedom to choose to follow His ways or to choose to follow our own way. He's given us free will because He wants and desires people who really love Him, not mere robots who, uh, who are forced to do good. He's given us free will. But with free will comes the possibility that we could choose to do the wrong thing, that we'll do the evil thing. In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis helps us imagine what it would be like if God did not let us feel the consequences of our actions. He says this, We can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of this abuse of free will by his creatures at every moment, so that a wooden beam became as soft as grass when it was used as a weapon. And the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible and in which the freedom of the will would be void. No, if the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible, for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. Unless God wants robots, he has to let us experience the consequences of our actions, even when our actions are evil. Sometimes valleys that we experience in life are truly of our own making, the result of our own mistakes. But here's the thing. When this is the case, it is usually abundantly clear to us that that is the case. If you, if you know that you are racking up hundreds of dollars on luxury shopping, it's not too hard to figure out where your financial problems are coming from. It's very easy to put two and two together. I often feel this way about uh, some of the people who will call up to uh, talk shows and write into the advice columns. Um, sometimes they'll call up explaining just the most ridiculous scenarios, and they're wondering why they're having problems in their life. Here's an example from a Dear Abby column. This is a real, this is a real example. Dear Abby, I have a man I cannot trust. He cheats so much, I'm not even sure the baby I'm carrying is his. <laughs> Abby, why am I having this problem? Why do I have this problem? Here's, here's another one. Here's another one. These are real. Totally real. I am a 23-year-old liberated woman who has been on the pill for two years. It's getting expensive, and I think my boyfriend should share half the cost. But I don't know him well enough to discuss money with him. <laughs> Abby, why am I having this problem? Why do I have this problem? Our past mistakes can make life difficult for us. They can even contribute to a prolonged valley. But, it, but most of the time, the connection between those mistakes is just crystal clear. You don't have to, to wonder and worry about it. For some people, when they are in the valley, um, they look at their situation and they're confused. Because the valley doesn't make any sense. The valley doesn't seem connected with a past mistake. Um, they, they, they look for some way that their character is being formed in this experience, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any lesson to learn. And they ask, why, God? Why? Why don't you intervene? 
why don't you step in and change the way things are going here? When we ask this question, what we're really asking is, why does a good God allow us to suffer? It's called, um, uh, by theologians, it's called the problem of evil. This question is the, the same issue that is discussed in the Old Testament book of Job. And to quickly summarize the story, um, Job is this righteous man, you know, good, outstanding, outstanding guy. Um, in the matter of a day, everything that he values in life is taken from him. Just his possessions, his wife, family, everything. And even his health begins to degrade. And, he, and he, he cries out to God wondering why. How could God do this to him? It's the same question that we have, isn't it? I don't have anything profound to say on this subject that thousands of years of Christian writers haven't already said. Um, but I feel like this is an honest question we, we ask in the valley. It's an honest question. And I think we needed to just touch on it briefly. One answer that's been given is that the good that is obtained through suffering um, outweighs the, um, the, the evil or the, the suffering that we experience in life. The, the idea is that the only way to obtain good character out of people is to take them through the valley of suffering. And so um, the, the, the ends justifies the means. Another answer is the idea, is the idea that C.S. Lewis presented in the uh, previous quote, that God didn't really want to make robots he wanted to make people who had free will, free choice, were able to choose to love him. And in order to make people who had free will, he had to give them the freedom to choose to do the wrong thing. And, of course, the fact that we can and do choose the wrong thing often wreaks havoc in our world. It means that many people suffer, including ourselves. There's lots of possible answers out there. Um, I, think, I think the free will argument is pretty good, in my opinion. Uh, but the thing is, you can raise fair objections to any of these. And you can say, you know, what about this? And what about this? And, you can, and really, you can do that forever. But here's the thing that I want you to consider. If, if any of the responses to the problem of evil make some sense in your mind, especially if you've never thought about them before, is it possible that you and me, with our limited knowledge, with our limited understanding, cannot fathom God's good reasons for allowing the world to be the way it is right now? Is it possible that you and me, with our limited knowledge and our limited understanding, cannot fathom God's good reasons for um, leaving the world, allowing it to be this way? Is that possible? If our definition of God is an infinite being with infinite knowledge, I think we must admit that it is possible. And this is essentially that God, the answer that God gives in the book of Job. I think it's fair to admit it's not a very satisfying answer, um, but this is essentially God's response. This is what he says to Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. Because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. And he goes on to share so many things that he understands that Job has no idea about. And he essentially says, when you can understand all those things, then you can tell me where I've made a mistake. Then you can charge me with wrongdoing but not until then. 
There is no explanation from God, but God assures us that he doesn't make mistakes. Sometimes the valley is simply beyond our comprehension, and we just have to trust God, trust him that he's going to make something good out of something that, that looks horrible, that's messed up. And maybe that's the lesson that we have to learn, to, be, to, to learn to trust. But really, we just don't know. We don't, we, it doesn't mean that God isn't with you. We just don't understand everything about how he works. So your valley, why are you going through a valley right now? Could be the effects of a broken world. Maybe you are getting hit by crossfire, something not, something not your fault. The result of someone else's evil choice. This could be a valley that God is intentionally leading you through because he is wanting to change you and form you in the furnace of suffering. It could be a valley that, uh, that is the result of some past mistake um, that you've made. But really, if, if that's the case, you probably know that already. Then, of course, this could be a valley that uh, you just can't understand. And we won't understand until we get to heaven. Maybe you're able to identify what your valley you know, may, might be, um, maybe not. But really, what matters the most is how we're going to deal with the valley. That's what really matters. And I want to give you four principles for how to break free from guilt and get yourself out of a valley. The first principle is this. Learn from your mistakes and learn from your challenges. Since we know that suffering is an opportunity for growth, let's take advantage of that. There's always something, almost always something to learn in the midst of suffering. Martin Luther once said this, and I love this quote. Um, he said, my temptations have been my masters in divinity. And, uh, and I just would encourage you to ask yourself, am I learning something right now? What am I learning? Remember, J Jesus said this, come to me, all you who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If, if day after day you're feeling burdened by something, perhaps you are carrying something that God never intended for you to carry. If there's something that got you into this mess, learn from the mistake, write it down. The, the crucial mistake the Israelites made in the Old Testament was they didn't remember the lessons that they had learned from their mistakes with God. They forgot them. So what can you learn? Here's the second principle. The second principle is to accept God's forgiveness. Don't leave those suspicions of your own guilt lingering. Address them. If you've made a mistake, here's the process. Confess what you've done to God. Repent, turn away from uh, that action and accept his forgiveness. Own the fact that you have been made clean with God through the death of Jesus Christ and that you are now friends with God. So long as you have repented and you're trying to live differently, anything or anyone who is trying to lay guilt on you is giving you something from the evil one. If you're not sure whether you made a mistake... Remember this, the cross of Jesus Christ covers all sins, both the unintentional, uh, intentional sins that we know about, sins that we don't know about. There is freedom from guilt in the name of Jesus. The forgiveness that comes through Jesus, I think it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing because it allows us to come into relationship with God. But you know what, what else it is? It is a shelter to stand under in the storms of life. Because it is a reminder of God's faithful to us, faithfulness to us. 
Whether you failed or didn't fail doesn't matter at all. It's all swallowed up in the ocean of God's love for you. Those suspicions, those doubts are swallowed up by God's forgiveness. His forgiveness covers sins in the future. His love for you is unwavering. So long as you have dedicated your life to him, his forgiveness covers all those possible failures, all of them. In the storms of life, whether you caused it or someone else caused it, um, or no one knows who caused it, doesn't matter. God will never leave you because you are his. When you come deeply in touch with the depth of his love for you and the forgiveness that he extends to you, you will find what the psalm says very true. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. The third principle is to believe in redemption. I saw a doctor once, and headaches were his specialty. Redemption is God's specialty. He specializes in taking broken situations and turning them into something beautiful. If you don't believe that he can do that, you need a bigger picture of God. You've got the wrong picture. Remember, Paul was a murderer and a terrorist. God turned him around. In the 70s, uh, uh, some of you are old enough to remember this. I, I am not. I've just heard the story. Um, <laughs> but in the 70s, there was a serial killer who uh, was terrorizing New York. His name was the Son of Sam. And um, people just remember him as a monster of a human being. He, uh, he shot uh, 13 people, um, was making threats all over the place. It went, on, it went on for a year. They were searching for him. And people were, people were just terrorized um, by him. Well, David Berkowitz, who was the son of Sam, um, you know, they found him, and he went to prison, and he began a relationship with Jesus in prison. And his life is totally different now. And here's an interesting thing from his life. He, uh, he was recently coming up for parole, and uh, he decided not to seek it because he, felt he wanted to spare the victim's families pain, uh, the pain that might happen if he were to be um, you know, released or put on parole. I thought that was interesting. Signifies that God changed his life. He's a totally different guy. No addict, no atheist relative, no mentally ill person, no financial situation, no marriage, no dysfunctional family is ever hopeless. There is always hope in God. He specializes in the redemption of our broken, ruined situations. The fourth principle is to continue to obey. When the storms of life hit, there is this temptation to run away, to flee, to quit. And this is what Elijah did when his life turned against him. He fled. He walked all day out into the desert. He sat down under a tree and he said, kill me, God. But God says to him, God comes to him and says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Go back the way you came. And he gives him some more instructions of what he's supposed to do. If God has given you something to do, don't quit until it's finished or until he's given you direction to go somewhere else or do something else. And difficulty does not count as direction. This is the way it should be with marriage vows. Marriage vows are supposed to be till death do us part. But when it gets really, really difficult, sometimes we want to change them. There's this temptation to change them to say, um, until I can't take it anymore. 
Difficulty is not direction. Continue to obey. Continued obedience is the path to character formation. It is the path to greatness. It is the only path. It is the only path that really truly gets you out of the valley. Don't let some lie about how it's not supposed to be difficult keep you trapped to, and uh, stuck in an old way of life. Would you stand?